Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customised insoles available in high, medium and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us. That's medical.currex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome to another episode of our Sport Corner series here with JOSPT Insights. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Matt Whalen. Matt is a physiotherapist, applied researcher, and sports scientist from Wollongong, Australia. Beyond being a seasoned clinician for the last 17 years, Matt completed his PhD in injury prevention in 2020 and has most recently taken on the role at Football Australia to design and implement the new national player availability framework and the Football Australia Perform Plus program. Matt also works with the Australia national teams, including the senior men's Socceroos and the Olympic team Roos at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics as a team physiotherapist. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. We are diving right into football, soccer, footy, whatever you want to call it. Let's lay down what are the basic positions, what are the different positional demands on the athletes that you're treating, and how does that affect your rehab? In soccer, it can be very dependent on the, on the coach and the, the, the tactics associated with the coach. So a good example in a higher profile level would be someone like Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, quite high-intensity pressing so you're trying to close the ball down if you lose the ball you want to get the ball back very physically demanding and whereas compared to some of the more continental european coaches say like jose Mourinho or conti so they would be much more defensive don't concede so those players often don't do a lot of like the higher intensity work so i suppose the asterisk at the start is to say look in general there's certain physical demands, but a lot of it will be determined by the, the coach themselves and potentially the game itself. You've got fullbacks, so there's like a defensive sort of structure. The two central sort of fullbacks, or sometimes it's three fullbacks, these days, central fullbacks, they don't do as much of the, the higher distance running, so their distances will be lower. They're often the larger players because they do more aerial duels and more contact components of, I'd say, heading the ball. These days, they have to be faster because strikers are quick. The physical demands may be less to do with the running aspects of the game versus more the physical tussles and the engagement. You have wingbacks, which so they often are the ones that will do a lot more high-speed running. And we normally define high-speed running as running over 19.8 kilometers an hour. They're the ones that normally we look at, and the wingers, which are more advanced players up the field, then they'll be the ones that they could do between 1,200 to 1,500 high-speed meters per game. About 10% of their running is 
pretty rapid and pretty quick. And they'll do a lot of what we call transition running where they might be going up the field when the players have the ball and then they might have to really quickly change direction and come back so there's not as much rest period. Then you have midfielders who tend to do less high-speed distance because they may, well, the central midfielders, sorry, they may do more, they do a lot more change of direction and they, they tend to be the ones that do the most total running. So they do your 12 kilometres up to 13 kilometres, sometimes, sometimes into 14, depending on how the game goes. When you look at GPS and sometimes the limitation of GPS, their high-speed running or sprinting may be less because the distances they actually run are shorter. So they don't hit they won't run far enough to get up to 19.8 kilometers on the GPS, but their actual workload's high because they're changing direction a lot, a lot of acceleration, deceleration. Wingers who will do a lot more sort of up and back sort of work or maybe do a more accelerated or curved running. And then we move into the strikers. Some strikers will be much more what we call W forward running strikers. So they're always trying to make a run forward to try and either stretch to get a ball behind a defender, or there'll be ones where they hold the ball up. And so they might be more the physical like larger players or you may have a quicker speedier player who tries to move beyond that and they, they they can be reaching speed up into the low 30s to mid 30 kilometers an hour might do that four five six times a day depending how the game goes so and over the last 10 to 15 years there's been a lot of changes within the the game itself if you look especially at the elite level with, with the game is far more explosive the distances run aren't necessarily further but the number of high speed runs and sprinting has actually increased by up to around 40 percent we did some, some research looking at sub-elite distances. So, like, you've got the elite game, which everyone knows about, but that's about 1% of, or if not less than 1% of the population that plays football soccer. And when we looked at the, the sort of the semi-pro sub-elite level here in Australia, the, the actual distances run weren't any different between the elite versus the sub-elite, but in the distances of high-speed running compared to the Australian sort of professional league, it was the same. But then compared to, the say, the English Premier League, it was half the distance. When we are dealing with community-based or sub-elite-based players, the, at the end of the day, we're trying to potentially get them ready to perform the same physical output that you may see an elite player, but they may have been laying bricks for instance all day or sitting in office all day before they go to training. There's a lot of context around the physical demands of the individual player. Professionalism in the women's space has meant that there's so much really interesting research coming out and there's been a, a lack of that. There used to be always an assumption that, especially around things like hamstring injuries that the female game had less hamstring injuries in the male game. But we're finding as as physical as professionalism increases and the physical capacity of our athletes increase, we're starting to see an evening out of those scenarios. So over the next few years, we're, we're going to get more and more information around the demands of the female player and also potentially as increase as equity continues to be achieved in terms of the resources available to female players, we may find that the differences in physical outputs in games may get closer and closer together. From our end, as, as physical therapists, then injury returning to play and prevention strategies and, and what we need to do to prepare players may actually have to adjust depending upon what we're finding that is the demands on these players themselves. Let's talk about what are the top injuries that you're seeing. Obviously, you mentioned hamstrings. Are you typically seeing more hamstring tendon injuries, more hamstring muscle, both? And then what other injuries are you, would you say like top three, top five injuries that you're seeing in these players? probably subclassified to some soft tissue-based injuries, so muscle-based injuries. So hamstrings are the most common. They tend to be more mid-belly hamstring injuries. We, we are starting to see more and more tendon-based injuries, whether we're better at picking them up or whether we're 
or whether the game, as it increases and the speeds and the demands are getting higher, we're starting to see more tendon-based, especially proximal tendon injuries in hamstrings, ruptures. We see more ruptures now than we used to see. And then you have hip and groin-related pain injuries and sort of a we tend to talk more these days in the dollar sort of groin pain consensus. So there's more of a so adductor-related, iliosalis-related comes into that, hip joint-related, inguinal and pubic-related groin injuries. Then um, quadriceps and calf, so lower leg, Achilles, calf sort of injuries. That, that's sort of the, the hierarchy of, of, of incidents. And then in joints, we'll see knee and ankles quite commonly. When we apply the concept of, say, injury burden, which is where we look at the incidents, so how often something happens, and then time, and then put, but put in the context of the cost of that injury. So the perfect example is an ACL, or an anterior cruciate ligament injury, where it doesn't happen very often, or we hope it doesn't happen very often. And then, but the cost is, say, 365 days versus a hamstring injury, which happens quite regularly, and the cost may be on average 15, 16 days of time loss. So what we often will look at now is what are our high burden injuries and ACL injuries, hamstring injuries, hip groin. Uh, they, they tend to be, our, and ankle sprains tend to be our top ones. Goalkeepers, they may sustain more shoulder and elbow, fingers and, and wrist sort of injuries. But our, our main focus always it tends to be around hamstring, hip and groin, knee, especially around ACL prevention because of the costs associated long and short term, and then um, ankle sprains in themselves. So what are some key prevention strategies that you're using for these injuries? So around the mid-2000s, so FIFA brought out the, the FIFA 11 Plus, or they brought out FIFA 11, and they upgraded it a bit to the FIFA 11 Plus, which was driven by FIFA, but also some great work by um, Holly Silvers Grinelli, who's based in the US. The key thing in injury prevention is that it kind of got lost for a little while. In that. Just do this program, and then injuries won't occur. And we know that if, if you do the 11 plus or like in Australia, we've just released last year an updated version called the Perform Plus, which is freely available. And we know that if you do that two to three times a week or the players do that, the, the risk of injuries is reduced by about 40%, which is not insignificant, but it's been pretty consistent across most of the research that's been done in with this program is that if you do these exercises or and this warm-up, what some of the work we did was looking at if we don't just make it a warm-up and we split it through the session or you do some stuff at home, you will improve performance, you'll improve your strength, and you'll decrease the risk of your injury. That's what we would call a primary prevention program where if we just give that to every single person, then the chances of them getting injured is reduced. The issue is you've got to get people to do it, which is why some of our work went to, all right, if you first do the 11 plus, it takes about 25 to 30 minutes. And if you've only got an hour to do it, then and eventually it gets down to like 15 to 20 minutes, no problem. But if you do all components when you're learning it, 30 minutes, the coaches go, I've only got an hour with my players on how do we make this better? If we can then give people more flexibility, go, look, just do the warm-up bit, there's eight to ten minutes, then you can do the strength work at the end. We know that increase strength and increase performance and reduce injuries, or just spread it through the session. But then you've also got to prepare your athletes properly or make sure they're able to do what you want them to do. So if I've got a player who probably can't do 1200 meters of high speed running there's no point expecting them to do that and then they get injured and you wonder why the key is to, to build capacity kind of now look at prevention as that primary component of build capacity make sure we apply a load that's sensible and and then make sure that the players adapting and adjusting that pretty well and then we progress into things like secondary prevention, so that which is essentially when things are changing. So someone might have a niggle, for instance. So that sort of minor tightness in the hamstring. So tightness yeah. or a bit of a sore ankle, but I can keep playing. So sure, it's a sure, minor sure. physical complaint that doesn't stop you from being able to participate or play. 
a football player often won't think they're injured until it affects their performance. So us as as physical therapists or physiotherapists might go, well, I want to know whenever you're sore, but they go, well, I'm always sore. So when would I tell you that I'm not sore? So what we do know is that if you do have that tightness or that um, aggravated thing, your risk of actually sustaining a more significant injury is increased by three to six times. So the presence of that is a nice little flag. So if you normally don't have hamstring tightness, but all of a sudden you do, then potentially as physical therapists, we can use that as a flag that the risk is elevated. The important part, which I always try and point out, is that the normal risk is 10%. So if you have no problems, the risk of you missing a training session or a match in the next seven days is about 10%. So if you go up by three times, it's still only 30%. So there's a 70% chance nothing happens. And there's a lot of false positives around it. So I don't want people from my end to go, oh, you have hamstring tightness, you should not train for a week because you're going to get injured because that is not what we're number one there for and it actually isn't accurate. But we can look at it as, okay, let's keep an eye on it. Maybe we modify a little bit of training. Maybe don't do the sprints today or do less sprints. And so I think we can apply good common sense there. Some good like off-the-shelf stuff that that we can start to implement and we can start to educate coaches on would be kind of like that FIFA 11 plus it's a good comprehensive. Does that address kind of, you mentioned the hamstring, the hip and groin, the ACL and the, or the knee injuries and the ankle sprains. Does that kind of get to all of those common things? And then you can kind of tweak it from there, depending on what you're seeing. Is that what you're saying? It's been shown to reduce injuries in all those areas. The new awesome. one that we put in with Football Australia, the Perform Plus, we, added, we actually added the Copenhagen adductor exercise into the program because it wasn't a specific adductor, hip and groin targeted exercise. In saying that, the, most of the evidence is the 11 plus will reduce hip and groin injuries as well. Like in 2009, when the 11 plus was introduced, there wasn't a lot of evidence supporting the Copenhagen adductor exercise. So what we did with our Perform Plus was not to reinvent the wheels, just to upgrade the model. We've unlocked it from the warm-up, so it can be done anywhere. There's a free off-the-shelf version out there whether it's the 11 plus whether it's the perform plus if you want to get the foot the australian one there's videos there's all sorts of bits and pieces out there that you can use the fit to play website there's another whole repertoire of exercise that you can look at on there as well and then also it seems like education then for that secondary prevention of people need to be able to recognize when they're actually injured those are some key takeaways here this doesn't seem very specific to football soccer this is every everything yeah yeah, every, it, like, and communication Communication is massive because that's that's how you develop trust. No matter what level you're working at, even if you're working in a clinic and supporting a, a local community team, so building a relationship with the coach, building a relationship with the player. And like well, these days, what we try and do is almost remove the words injury and injury prevention into more player availability. So we, well, we want players to be available for training. Unfortunately, physiotherapists, physical therapists, we often get a sometimes rightly deserved reputation for just we'll just rule players out and they can't train, which makes coaches very frustrated, often players frustrated. But if we go more with the concept, we want to keep you as available as we possibly can and we will try and find ways for you to participate in training, which may mean that we have to modify a little bit or we can take you out of this but leave you with that and then use common sense, then that creates that trust. So then when something happens and go, look, I really don't want you to train today, then there's a lot more buy-in with our decision. It's invaluable if you can get that trust with the player and all the other stakeholders, parents, coaches, and, and especially in the youth space where you've got overuse injuries or you have oh, sorry, growth-related injuries as well. And you've got people who are hitting different stages of their growth cycle where some players can't tolerate the load that's being prescribed to them by the coach, not because they're not robust enough, just at that time period, their body's just sabotaging them a little bit and making them less, less robust than usual. 
We've just got to get them through that time period. You know, you have the off-the-shelf injury prevention option, and then you also talked a bit about you know looking at the player in front of you and then measuring your analyzer or, ass- or assessing their capacity and making sure that their capacity matches up to what they're expected to do out on the field. Do you have a certain way that you go about kind of assessing these players' capacity and making sure that it matches up, or is it kind of more of just a, a, a feel for what you see out on the field? We'll often do like a groin squeeze. We can use a handheld dynamometer or we'll use a blood pressure cuff to measure changes in strength over a time period. So if we're in a, a camp with a, a national team, for instance, but no one's ever been ruled out for a bad groin squeeze of a training session. Collection of data is to form, it's like we're, we're just taking inputs to then eventually work out what are we going to do today with this athlete. And I think data informed is great, but data, data dictated is always a bit dangerous. If we go from that angle, then we've got to be careful what we actually ask the players to do. So how much data do we need from these players? We used to collect everything to now. It's like, well, we might ask them one question, but I still find if you can get players to report to you or, or, or even if you can see a player, you'll be able to, if you've known them and seen them long enough, you'll know if something's going wrong or they're not feeling well. And just actually understanding the, the athletes is really important. Whereas, and I, again, I can put my hand up and say I've done this where We've spent so much time, a player will come in, we're screening, we're doing all this stuff, we're looking at laptops, we're looking at iPads and taking all this information, then the player's gone, next one comes in. Until I go back and look at the data, I have no idea where the player is. If it's a decentralized setting where you might be, you're in New York and you've got a player in LA, that makes it a bit trickier. So we'll take uh, player wellness sort of surveys or, or questionnaires around that sort of stuff. So I think it's got to fit to the purpose of where you are, but I think you, I don't think we should ever lose from our end, the ability to work with an athlete and determine what is best for them in combination with them. There's a skill set, hopefully, that we bring, which is useful for everybody. So I love the data-informed, not-dictated piece that you said there, and also really like what you were talking about as far as taking power measures, strength measures, using the physical data as a proxy for picking up on recovery or lack thereof when compared to you know, fresh trials. Clinically clinically speaking, we don't usually use this, or we, rather we use this data differently as far as a way to measure long-term rehab gains and, and deficits, not within week changes. And I really like that perspective, particularly for trying to ward off overuse or, or poor recovery-related injuries. Now, you've been working at a high level for a long time now. What do you, what do you want to share with listeners regarding your experience? Well, I always love to try and keep athletes training on the field doing what they like as much as possible and if we can incorporate that into their rehab component then we will do it really quickly now to do that you really need to work hard on creating your system around that and that may mean that if you work with a club spending time educating coaches we've developed a a sheet that is a so if a player comes in say with an ankle sprain then we have a sheet that all that it doesn't matter who's treating them they give that and they give that to the coach but and on that will have all the things they can do so it will tick you can warm up you can do juggling you can pass you can do this we're shifting the balance to going these are the things you can do obviously the, the boxes that aren't ticked you can't do so we actually still get what we want which is to put them in a safe-ish environment but at the same time we're mentally helping them get back into it we're keeping them attached to their group and their club and their coaches and they get to learn the technical and tactical components around that i think learning how to work with as a, as physical therapists or physiotherapists is, is have have a good relationship with the strength and conditioner or the if there is a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist or the coach themselves is to learn how coaches think as a physiotherapist so 
we're sometimes very good at prescribing but not very good at coaching. So we'll go, you need, you need to do three sets of 10 of these Nordics. And the player goes, I only want to do five. From a, co- from a physio perspective, you know, well, our dose isn't adequate or we're not getting what we need. The literature says this, so therefore we're not getting it. Whereas as some, if we put our coach hat on, well, five is better than zero. We're not going to get any. And if we just get five now, I can get six tomorrow and seven the next day. I think sometimes having that sort of, I know they get called soft skills, but I don't necessarily think that's the way to put them. I think it's more looking at an integrated approach where the player feels like we're all on the same page. We're going to let you do bits and pieces. Probably early on, just really not going for that hero comment of you're out for four weeks. Give people the opportunity to go once you can do that and more softer goal setting where once you can walk, you can jog. If you can jog, you can run. You can say normally this takes seven days, but if you're here, then we can do that. So I think just those sort of components of really trying to look after the patient, communicate well, and don't work off defined time periods, but work off goals. You have some some serious experience to share that, you know, know your athlete, be a little bit more of a coach and uh, try to help them do as much as they can because everybody in that situation wants them to be doing as much as they can. Thank you so much for no spending time with us today on JSP Insights. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.